Hi, my name is Andrew Gonawala. Uh, welcome to The Burn Bag. Uh, today I wanted to do a, a special episode on the Houthis, the uh, Iranian-backed uh, Yemeni militant group. Uh, the US and the UK recently launched uh, airstrikes uh, against the Houthis in Yemen uh, as a response uh, to the Houthis uh, doing, I think, basically launching a lot of missiles at ships, uh, attacking ships, attempting to hijack them uh, in the Red Sea. Uh, there's been a lot of, I think, snap judgments, snap assumptions made about who the Houthis are when a lot of people, to be honest, have just only heard about the Houthis in the very recent past. Uh, so today I wanted to talk about who the Houthis are, sort of offer a 101 uh, podcast session. And I'm very happy to be joined by uh, Michael Knights. Uh, Michael is the Jill and Jay Bernstein Fellow at the Washington Institute, specializing in the military and security affairs of Iraq, Iran, and the Gulf states. Uh, he is a co-founder of the Militia Spotlight Platform, which offers in-depth analysis of developments related to Iran-backed militias in Iraq and Syria. And uh, Dr. Knights has traveled widely in Iraq, Yemen, and Gulf states, uh, regularly briefing the U.S. government policymakers, congressional committees, and U.S. military officers on regional security affairs. And he has also worked extensively with both military and security agencies on the ground in Iraq, the Gulf states, and Yemen. Uh, so, Michael, thank you so much for joining me here today. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So, Michael, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, uh, a lot of people are making I think, snap judgments uh, often fueled by social media about who the Houthis are. To some, some people think the Houthis are the social justice warriors. And on the other side, some people think that they are basically akin to the Taliban. Uh, I certainly don't think they're social justice warriors, but I'm not sure if they're totally comparable to the Taliban. So in short, I mean, who are the Houthis? Well, on that spectrum, they're definitely not uh, social justice warriors. And, you know, you, you'd have to have a a very, you know, paper-thin interest in the war in Yemen to think that. Even people who believe that the Houthis were pushed into Iran's arms by the long last 20 years of war between the Houthis and uh, various Saudi-backed elements, even those people have come to see over the last 10 years or so that the Houthis are actually very brutal when it comes to uh governing the parts of Yemen that they control, which is the largest and most populous part. So, you know, I understand when people think they act like the Taliban because they've taken over control of millions of people, far more than the Islamic State had under its control at its high point in, uh, let's say, 2016. And, uh, you know, they, they're more like the Taliban or indeed Lebanese Hezbollah, or indeed the Revolutionary Guard in Iran, in terms of the sheer scale of people that they've subjected um, to the way they run a country and uh, their regime security apparatus. So I know we'll dive into the Yemeni civil war and how that sort of turned out in Yemen in terms of who has control. But I think one thing that I've seen, especially on social media, are people sort of branding the Houthis as Yemen, saying Yemen is launching these attacks in the Red Sea, the U.S. is striking Yemen, uh, almost making the Houthis and Yemen as equivalent. They are one and the same. So, I mean, is it accurate to say that the Houthis are Yemen? No, uh, it's inaccurate in a number of ways. Um, you know, the Houthis do currently control territory that includes most of the population of Yemen. And by most, I mean maybe just over half or two thirds. Uh, the Houthis are 
often referred to as rebels because they announced a coup in September 2014 that overthrew or at least pushed the UN-backed Yemeni government out of the capital Sana'a and into various other cities in Yemen from which it continued to sort of govern, uh, even though it also uh, did some governing, most of its governing from Saudi Arabia and the UAE, you know, a lot of it's the Yemeni government since the Houthis took over the capital uh, has been sort of splintered and operating from about four or five bases in Yemen and outside. So the reason why people think they're Yemen is because they control probably more than half of the population and they control the capital. Uh, and they control a lot of what remains of the old armed forces. So this can feel to a lot of people like a civil war where we have two claimants for being the legitimate government of Yemen. I'd maybe back that off a little bit because there is still only one uh, UN designate or UN uh, recognized government of Yemen. Uh, and it is not the Houthis uh, in Sana'a who are recognised as being coup plotters and for which there's UN sanctions uh, against them to prevent anyone from rearming them, even though Iran manages to do that quite effectively. So, you know, the Houthis are not representative of the whole of Yemen and they're not controlling the whole of Yemen and they're not the internationally recognised government of Yemen. Uh, but they certainly are in control of a very significant portion of the country. So, I mean, aside from that, and I know we're going to be doing a deep dive into the Houthis, but I mean, what are some of the biggest misconceptions that people have about the Houthis uh, and who they are, at least from what you observed in you know the last couple of weeks and months? Well, this is actually an academic and policy argument that's been going on for probably over 10 years now, which is the main uh, misconception, I think, being that the Houthis do not want to be closely aligned with the Iranian government and Lebanese Hezbollah, but they have been forced into a marriage of convenience by the fact that they've been at war with the Yemeni government for 20 years and with the Saudi-led coalition uh, since 2015, which is you know, getting on for nearly 10 years now. And so the main, I think, misconception for me is that um, this is a, a marriage of convenience between Iran and the Houthis that's only been made worse by war. What my co-contributors in the October 2022 edition of West Point's Combating Terrorism Centre, Sentinel, uh, proved in a, a large uh, study that we did was that the Houthis have been working extremely closely with the Islamic Republic of Iran and Lebanese Hezbollah right the way back into the 1980s. And that the Iranians looked at the current Houthi leadership and said, these guys want to do exactly what we've done in Iran and what Lebanese Hezbollah has done in Lebanon particularly. And we want to help them achieve that in Yemen. And it's been a long, slow road. But ultimately, uh, they have taken over Yemen in a similar Islamic revolution that we had in Iran. Uh, and in a way that's very similar to what Lebanese Hezbollah has done in terms of hollowing out and controlling the Lebanese state. Oh, certainly. And, you know, that, uh, you know, you make those parallels, uh, those relationships, and that leads me to a question about ideology. I mean, when you pull up the Houthis uh, Wikipedia page, you sort of see their slogan. Their slogan is, God is the greatest, death to America, death to Israel, a curse upon the Jews, and victory to Islam. What is their ideology? I mean, I feel like I can't necessarily just, like, tone it down to just, you know, those five lines I just stated. But, I mean, what do they actually believe 
what do they want? Yeah, so first thing we need to do, of course, is to say, who is they? And, uh, you know, we have multiple levels of what we now call the Houthi uh, movement. But, you know, there's a there's an actual formal name for that movement, which is Ansar Allah, uh, the partisans of God. And uh, the Houthi family is the heart of that Ansar Allah movement. And as a result, the heart of the regime that now controls northern Yemen, most of the Yemeni population. Uh, the Houthi family is a northern Yemeni family uh, who come from the Zaidi uh, sect. And broadly, and this is a, another misconception, the Zaidi sect is seen as being uh, a, a Yemeni uh, sect within um which mixes Shia and Sunni Islam. And the Zaidi uh, sect is seen as being uh, more moderate than uh, some of the positions taken by uh, Iranian and, um, and Lebanese Hezbollah hardliners. Uh, it's seen as being different from uh, the branch of Shia Islam that's predominantly worshipped in uh, Iran, Iraq, Lebanon, Bahrain. But what people miss about the Houthi leadership clan is that they're from a particular segment of the Zaidi community called Jarudis. And the Jarudis are much closer to the kind of 12 Shia Islam that is uh, practiced in Iran, Iraq, Lebanon, Bahrain, uh, than uh, the other Zaidis uh, within their own country. In other words, what we have here is not really a representative sample of uh, the Zaidi community in northern Yemen, which you can say um, you know, is not particularly close to Iran. Instead, what you have here is a tiny sliver from within that Zaidi community that has risen to the top, in part because it's received strong support from Iran and from Lebanese Hezbollah. And from that seed, they've grown a large network of tribal structures and They've created many alliances through marriage. And these are large families, each of which, you know, many sons, each of which who are marrying politically within the local tribal system. And what the Houthis have done is to go from being a, a very small player within northern Yemen to over the last 20 years, uh, expanding out until they actually control uh, most of the country's population. And that was no, that wasn't luck that that happened. And it was opposed by Saudi Arabia and by others. Uh, but a combination of the quite capable Houthi leadership mixed with a good amount of Lebanese Hezbollah and Iranian backing has produced uh, a tremendous result for the Axis of Resistance, which we're now seeing today in their ability to shut down the Red Sea and the Suez Canal and essentially put global shipping back to the 1840s. No, no, absolutely. And I mean, it, it's so interesting to talk about that rise to prominence. I mean, in what in what context did the Houthis uh, rise to prominence? Uh, what was, I guess, that that incitement for them to grow, gain prominence? I mean, what was happening in Yemen uh, politically, you know, across that landscape? So Yemen is a place that was ruled by an imamate that came from the Zaidi uh, sect for most of you know the last uh, 1300 years so when the houthis take over 
as a kind of Zaidi imamate, even though not exactly the way it's been done throughout history. It's something of a natural form of governance coming back to northern Yemen. Uh, that does not appeal to people who are far off in the east of Yemen or the south of Yemen uh, or even on the Red Sea coast of Yemen, uh, who are historically either outside or at the edges of that old Zaidi imamate that lasted for many centuries. Uh, so when the Houthis began to build their clan-based system in the 1980s, they hitched a ride on something called the Zaidi revival, which was a kind of a, a hunger within the northern Yemeni Zaidi community to be great again, to be in charge again. They'd been removed in the uh, 60s by the Yemeni Arab Republic, an Egyptian-based Arab socialist government, somewhat similar to the ones that came up also in other places like uh, Syria and Iraq and, uh, and many other places across the Middle East uh, during that kind of Nasserite era. So they wanted to continue ruling the country, which they had done for almost all of its, its existence in the last two millennia. And the Houthis founded Lebanese Hezbollah, a organisational uh, model for that, which is summer camps, a Zaidi revivalist movement, um, uh, television channels, uh, slick media presentation, and eventually military resistance uh, against the government, which evolved on a Lebanese Hezbollah model initially. And then since the um, about 2012, when they began their takeover of uh, the country writ large, has evolved in more of a revolutionary guard manner, like the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, creating a parallel military of their own that was more powerful than Yemeni's national military. So, you know, they brought, they took their models from both Lebanese Hezbollah and from the uh, Islamic Republic of Iran post-1979. They also modelled themselves in some ways on Osama bin Laden, who the key Houthi leadership uh, believed was a very inspirational anti-Western um, agitator and uh, resistance fighter is the way they would think of it. So they brought all of these things together and they mixed them together with that ancient tradition of the Imamate and they began to take over the northern Yemen. The final thing to say about Houthi ideology is that, you know, the Houthis are not Democrats, uh, you know, as in not supporters of democracy. They're they're not a very inclusive organisation, to say the least. They have a strict caste-based system in which they believe that their senior leadership, who claim direct descent from the Prophet, are the only uh, class of individuals who are fit to run society. So, you know, that leadership cadre of individuals who have, um, in a sense, genetic superiority or supremacy, uh, is spread across their entire system as overseers of everything else that's going on within occupied Yemen. I think that's a lot of helpful context and understanding, you know, how they would govern. And, you know, I sort of want to take that first half of the 2010s now and sort of understand that and how they enmesh themselves and how they sort of rose to, you know, significant power. I mean, because I think the Yemeni uh, revolution starting in 2011, that sort of coincided with, you know, a lot of the developments uh, with the Arab Spring, you know, as we remember to hear Square in Egypt, the ousting of Mubarak, uh, what was going on in Tunisia, the advent of what was going on in Syria. And then we have the civil war 
uh, breakout in 2014. So, I mean, did the Houthis instigate the 2011 revolution? Uh, did they instigate the 2014 civil war? Or did they sort of find themselves as the lucky folks who could bandwagon and then take control of those uh, efforts? What what was sort of going on? You're asking the right person. I just uh, completed published one book on this and a second one's coming out um this uh this year and this is this period that uh there were two rising forces in yemen even prior to the arab spring in 2011 and which overthrew yemen's long-standing um president ali abdullah Saleh. and those two forces rising were on the one hand al-qaeda in the arabian peninsula which was seizing more territory in the south and the east along the coast. And the other hand, the Houthis in the north, who in a series of six wars between 2004 and 2010, had gone from hiding in caves in the first war to taking over their home province of Sada uh, during the final war in 2010. And indeed, in uh, inflicting significant and humiliating military uh, defeats on Saudi forces on the Saudi-Yemeni border up there where the Houthis uh, live. And uh, in fact, I remember being in southern Saudi Arabia and looking at these huge swathes of fertile farmland between uh, the mountains that mark the beginning of Yemen and uh, the lowlands of Saudi Arabia. And those huge farms had not been farmed for eight years at that stage, because the Houthis had evicted Saudis from their own territory and Saudi farmers were not allowed to go back into those areas because the government could not protect them. So the Houthis by 2010 had secured their home base, taught the Saudis a lesson, and were now receiving much stronger Iranian support. They also managed to get hold of a port in the north, uh, a little port called Midi, and that allowed the Iranians to directly ship weapons uh, in and Lebanese Hezbollah advisors. And if you look at the wars fought between the Houthis and the Saudis on that border in the early 2010s, the way the Houthis fight is exactly the way Lebanese Hezbollah used to fight the Israelis uh, on the border and still does today. So we could see the Houthis stabilizing their situation, growing. And when the moment of the Arab Spring happened, they were perfectly prepared for it. Uh, not that they knew it was going to happen, but they just acted very rapidly. And one of the reasons for that we now know from uh, all sorts of evidence is that they had Lebanese Hezbollah advice on how you essentially take over a country piece by piece. And they executed that advice, including about, for instance, how to create intelligence systems for you to map out the local human terrain, the local tribal terrain, who's married to who, who's enemies with who. And then how to quickly move during the chaos of the Arab Spring and make deals with each person in each individual place. So by uh, 2012, 2013, two years after the Arab Spring, while the UN was still trying to rebuild some kind of post-Arab Spring Yemeni government, uh, the Houthis were gaining more and more arms through their port, more and more territory, more and more alliances, and their enemies were getting weaker and weaker. And that's what allowed them in 2014 to finally push the button on a full coup. And they took over Sana'a in the north, the capital, and then they tried to take over three other places. The first succeeded, the Red Sea coast on the west, where all the oil export terminals are, where the largest 
or one of the largest ports is, feeding the north in particular. Then they tried to take Aden in the south, the old uh, historic port city, but that failed. The Emiratis and the Yemenis stopped them in the 2015 uh, war that we all know about since. And in the east, they tried to take Marib, where the centre of oil and gas uh, production in Yemen. And if they had gained that, they would have had the capital, all of the oil and gas resources, or most of them, and the method to export those. They would have had a viable state. But again, the UAE, the Saudis, and the Yemenis stopped them from seizing that. So the Houthis found themselves in charge of most of the population, but not most of the income. And as a result, they've been this sort of contained, expansionist, ambitious, and aggressive adversary inside Yemen uh, ever since kind of 2015 to 2018 period. No, that, that's super interesting. And I mean, I, I think when people think about the Houthis, they may think about this sort of ragtag uh, militant organization that seems a bit unorganized to an extent, if you if you catch what I'm meaning, like, uh, and what you're describing is, you know, a very sophisticated sort of military organization. So I'm sort of curious, you know, if I can even make the apt cons- comparison, you know, are they more akin to, say, during the Vietnam War, or the Viet Cong, that were this resistance in South Vietnam, or are they more akin to the North Vietnamese uh, military? You know, one being very, I guess, organized, formal, and the other being, you know, having a degree lesser than that. We might... I don't know if that if I can use that model because it makes me feel like that what I want to say is that they're a mixture of those. Because but let me put it a different way though. Let me keep it within the Yemen context. Um I think the Houthis look very ragtag because their rank and file looks extremely ragtag. Uh, and that's because many of their rank and file are very poor, very young, often child soldiers. And very uneducated. I'll give you an example. When Houthis are typically captured on the battlefield fighting uh, other Yemeni forces or fighting Emiratis or Saudis, the first thing they often ask is, where are the Americans? I thought we were fighting Americans. Or they say, where are the Israelis? I thought you were Israelis. Or they say, where's Al-Qaeda? I thought you were Al-Qaeda. Because, you know, they have very little idea often of what they're actually doing or who they're fighting or indeed where they are. They're also whacked out on a a cocktail of drugs a lot of the time too, whether it's the sort of captagon fentanyl or whether it's uh, cat, obviously the chewable narcotic that everyone in Yemen is is chewing, or at least a lot of people. So, you know, the the bit that we see often doesn't look very sophisticated. And even when we see nowadays their military parades, we look at that and we say, well, yeah, they're a lot smarter than they used to be. The uniforms are smart, the parades are smart, large forces, increasingly advanced weapons provided by the Iranians. Uh, But still, you know, this looks like a typical Arab Republican military, which is a, a, a bit, it looks good, but all their kits, you know, could easily be taken out by the US and, uh, But underneath the surface, there's another level to the Houthis. And this is the level that people don't see. This is what we documented in that West Point Combat and Terrorism Center piece uh, last year, which was the Jihad Council, which is the same kind of organizational mechanism used by Lebanese Buller and by Revolutionary Guard in Iran. Uh, In terms of operational security and protection of key leaders, the Houthis, I would say, are almost second to none. Uh, the Israelis 
probably couldn't find and kill Houthi leaders even if they wanted to. The Americans would struggle uh, because these guys have been under uh, Saudi air attack, attempting to decapitate their leadership for at least eight years. And indeed, the entire 20-year period of war was started by uh, the loss of, uh, to a government execution, uh, the leader of uh, the Houthi uprising at that stage. Uh, so, you know, we are at the moment looking at an enemy who has been trained by Iran and Lebanese Hezbollah to protect its leadership, to utilize uh, the most advanced weapons from uh, medium range ballistic missiles, long range cruise missiles, drone systems. You know, I'll give you an example where uh, nobody, Iran has never fired a medium range ballistic missile at Israel. It's never dared. The Houthis have fired at least three during this crisis already. They are the guys who do it. They don't just talk about it, they actually do it. And, you know, a way of looking at how advanced they got, how quickly is that, you know, they went from in 2015 at the start of this war, only really being able to fire short range unguided rockets, the Katushas, or do a decent roadside bombing. Uh, within about uh, a year and a half, they were throwing medium-range ballistic missiles at Riyadh. They were doing what only uh, people like Saddam Hussein had done before, a massive, well-resourced state. They were throwing scuds at Riyadh. And you don't make that kind of jump on your own uh, in just uh, a year and a half. You do that because you've been very intensively mentored by uh security partners and those are the revolutionary guard in iran and lebanese hezbollah so when we think about this you know the yemeni civil war as a proxy conflict it's not like iran is necessarily dictating what the houthis are doing but they're very much emboldening them and encouraging them through this mentorship and through those uh i mean the weaponry really is that accurate yes i mean the iranians you see, a lot of people, they another mis misperception is that um, it's about whether the Iranians tell the Houthis what to do or whether the Houthis tell the Iranians what to do. That doesn't apply if you start from um, the conclusion that they want the same thing. And we've seen in this uh, Gaza crisis that the Houthis have not needed to have their arm twisted behind their backs by the Iranians uh, to do more in the same way that, let's say, uh, you know, Lebanese Hezbollah has been very hesitant to call damage down upon itself. The, the Iraqi militias have been very hesitant to stick their necks out too far uh, to upset the Americans or indeed the Israelis. The Houthis uh, have done exactly whatever they pleased. Now, the reason for that is not because Iran is twisting their arm behind their back extra hard and saying, you've got to do this, you've got to put yourself at risk for the Axis resistance for us. It's because the Houthis want to take those risks and they, in fact, want to prove that they're more risk acceptant than any other member of the Axis of Resistance, more than the original Hezbollah, more than the Iraqi militias who have been working with Iran for 40 plus years, more than the Iranians themselves. The Houthis want to show that they are the ultimate Axis of Resistance actor, the purest, the most motivated, the most sacrificing. And, you know, the reason for that is not because the Iranians have some leverage over them. The reason for that is because that's what they believe. That's why they have the screen as their uh, logo, as their motto, uh, because they go further than the Iranians. They go further than the Iraqi or Lebanese militias. Uh, they are probably the purest member of the axis of resistance. And they're also growing their power 
much more rapidly than the Lebanese Hezbollah or the Iraqi militias. And they're also in a much more strategic location than, let's say, Lebanon. You know, Lebanon is small. The Israelis can ultimately overrun it if they really have to. And they can, as a result, eviscerate uh, Hezbollah in the same way that they've just done with Hamas. Uh, you can never do that with Yemen. And Yemen is not sitting, uh, I mean, the Eastern Mediterranean is a very strategic place. But the Indian Ocean, Red Sea, Suez Canal is a much more strategic place. Absolutely. And I mean, you know, when we're talking about the Yemeni civil war, I mean, what has been the human toll in general from this war? I mean, it's been terribly bloody. Uh, we've had this terrible famine that caught that was caused by the war. And then there have been, you know, allegations of many significant war crimes uh, by the Houthis, uh, the internationally recognized Yemeni government, and then the Saudi-led uh, intervention, which is US-backed. I mean, what have we seen there? I mean, just this terrible human cost, these war crimes, just, I mean, it's sheer horror that's been happening there for the last, I think, 10 or so years. Well, if you want to avoid horror, the best thing you can do is to avoid the war starting. And obviously the Houthis were not contained back then. Once the war had begun, one way to perhaps make it shorter or perhaps uh, more precise would have been for the US and the international community to provide more support to the internationally recognized government of Yemen. But we didn't. We left it to the Saudi-led coalition. And, you know, they were not as focused on collateral damage prevention. Uh, at least uh, the Saudi Air Force was not. Uh, and they chose to go with high-risk strategies, such as trying to decapitate the Houthi leadership, which drew them into a lot of urban uh, strikes in an environment where many civilians were present. Um, not that different from some of the US signature strikes against Al-Qaeda, where we've blown up weddings and funerals and so on, uh, because we felt that enough enemy leaders were present. We didn't characterise the event properly. So, you know, when it comes to collateral damage, civilian harm in this war from kinetic operations, uh, it's been very bad. There's no doubt about that. And partly that's because of this attempt to decapitate the Houthi leadership, because the Saudis had no confidence that they could generate enough high quality forces to actually fight the Houthis out of the mountains, out of the capital and back into their uh, home province. When it comes to the idea of starvation and, um, and blockade, you know, that's a complex question. The Houthis have been extremely effective at doing what we call information operations. And that's where you find a theme that many people are willing to believe, such as the Saudis are the bad guys, uh, such as military action in Yemen is irresponsible, uh, such as the Houthis, you know, as you were talking about, <clears throat> are these kind of progressive warriors resistance fighters, um, they play into a lot of Western narratives, which were very strong after, for instance, the Khashoggi incident with Saudi Arabia, and with uh, Western media dislike of, let's say, UAE leadership interaction with the Trump administration. They played into a lot of this fertile ground to portray Yemen as being one on the edge of a, an almost irrecoverable famine. Two, that continuing military operations against the Houthis would worsen that instead of perhaps providing the quickest way out of that, the quickest resolution so that, for instance, uh, inspections could stop, ports could reopen, 
the amount of uh, food and fuel getting into the country could increase. But more, most importantly, the amount of income getting into households could increase because the government will be put back together again and the liberated areas would receive a significant amount of economic aid. Problem is we froze. We froze halfway through two things, either removing the Houthis from power or just letting them take over. We didn't do either of those things. We, did, we went halfway. And then when it looked like the Houthis were on the road to being contained or, or uh, at least pushed back from the Red Sea coast and having all of Yemen's coastlines liberated and free to act as entry points for food and fuel, unfortunately, at that point, that's when the international community pulled the plug on the entire war with the, um, with the uh, Stockholm uh, peace process. So, I mean, you know, we've talked about this a little bit before, but I sort of want to just understand, I mean, what type of popular support do the Houthis have uh, right now? Uh, you know, like, how did they win that popular support, right? Because it's like, you know, people don't just wake up one day and decide to support a militant organization, right? Uh, you know, there's some logic or some reasoning, at least for the general population. You've mentioned this information war, but you also mentioned earlier, you know, like the tribes and how they sort of work through to build that sort of gradually. But I mean, you know, what is the nature of that popular support today? And I mean, how have they generally governed that territory that they do control right now? Yeah, so when it comes to popular support, uh, and the Houthis, it's something that they've definitely effectively grown uh, over the last nine years of being in charge of Yemen. You know, when this began, when the current civil war began in 2014, uh, when it moved to the point of them actually cooing out the UN-backed government in, uh, in Sana'a, uh, you know, the Houthis have built a strong tribal network in the north based on political leverage, military leverage, e.g. repression based on forming alliances with individual tribes, helping them to fulfill their individual objectives and problem, overcome their problems, and also through marriage ties. Then when they took over the government, they obviously also had a degree of income, even though they didn't have the oil and gas fields of uh, the east of the country. They nonetheless had the ability to tax things. Uh, they had some of Yemen's uh, savings, which is not, not a lot, and they had the ability to print money. So when you put all those things together, the Houthis then gained another way to gain support. And obviously in Yemen, uh, you do wake up some days and decide you want to join a uh, militant organization because that's the day that they decided to give you a job uh, or give your brother a job or whatever. So they were also able to build to buy support. They're also able to use repression to avoid opposition. Now, Another thing that then happened during the war was that increasing numbers of collateral damage incidents occurred uh, by the Saudi-backed coalition bombing, typically. And of course, that turned a number of tribes against the Saudi-backed coalition and the uh, internationally recognized government, or at least it, it gave the Houthis a way to build support within those communities. There's no doubt about that. But then what's more interesting is that since the Houthis took over, they again used that Lebanese Hezbollah uh, Iraqi, uh, sorry, Iranian uh, Basij or Revolutionary Guard model to create nationwide, or at least all the areas they controlled, human resources systems that for the first time really counted all the people in Yemen, looked at where they lived, looked at their recruitability, what's the military manpower base, when does a certain person reach the age of this or that, 16, 18, and they also accelerated their program of uh, religious camps, 
summer camps typically. And what that's meant is that if you're a, a young Yemeni guy who is, let's say, 16 years old, you were seven when the Houthis took over the capital and most of the news and television channels that you see. And the Houthi supervisors took over uh, the schools, the local councils, the ministries, the ministry branches. And so ever since you were seven years old, the only government you've known is the Houthis. And they're telling you 24-7, 365 to hate America, to hate Israel, to hate Saudi Arabia, and to hate the non the other Yemeni factions. Uh, and so because Yemen's such a young country with such a large youth population, the amount of people who can actually remember a time before the Houthis is dramatically reducing every day. The longer they control this place, the more likely they are to control this place in the future. And the more likely they are to have willing uh, military operators instead of press-ganged operators, or even, as has been the case for a lot of the war, uh, individuals whose families sold them uh, to the Houthi movement, because at least the Houthis could provide them with, I want to say three square meals a day, but at least they could provide them with some form of life support, and it would get that individual out of the family's household and into a, quote, job. No, oh, yeah. I mean, you know, I think we can do a whole other episode on, you know, like why people are radicalized, why people join terror organizations. And oftentimes, I mean, I took a course on this back at U Chicago. I mean, like, it's a lot of simple reasons, like, right, like three square meals a day, food, access to resources, and so on that they weren't getting otherwise. Uh, but, you know, like, now I sort of want to ask, uh, President Trump, uh, designated the Houthis as a terrorist organization, I think right before he left office in January of 2021. Uh, President Biden subsequently uh, removed that designation. Uh, but I now I wonder, you know, is that going to change? I mean, what about their tactics? One would uh, classify them as a terrorist organization, as we generally sort of define it. And then two, do we anticipate putting them back on uh, the list as a terrorist organization? Yeah, so obviously I'm not a I'm not a a terrorism lawyer, right? But you know I look at these sanctions a lot, and I've had a a good hard think about how the Houthis have been treated uh, through them. I mean, when a when one administration does something as their last ever act, and the other and the next administration cancels it as basically their first act, uh, it has to be a pretty contentious thing that they're talking about. Um, but it also happens to be something that obviously the Trump administration were not exactly that motivated to do because, you know, if it's the very last thing you ever do, um, you know, it was hardly top of your agenda. Um, so, you know, for me, it's become very politicised, that designation as a foreign terrorist organisation. And I don't think it was a particularly useful thing to do, honestly. Why? Um well, first of all, because as the opponents of the designation suggested, it is quite difficult for humanitarian organisations to work with an organisation that's been designated as a foreign terrorist organisation by the US. And because the Houthis are the de facto rulers of most of the Yemeni population, and you know, no matter what you think, Yemen's either close to a famine or too close for comfort to a famine, you know, it, it, or it might happen. Even if it just might happen, that's too big a risk. So, you know, you didn't want to inject a big problem into the provision of humanitarian assistance to Yemen at that exact moment. 
But it's also, I think, now become tied up with, um, you know, your foreign policy identity. Um, if you're a foreign policy hawk who thinks that Obama and Biden administrations have never done enough, you're going to think redesignate the Houthis. And if you're somebody who believes that Republicans and Trump administration are kind of reckless warmongers, uh, you're going to think, no, you know, don't do it. But, you know, the reality is I'm quite hawkish, but I don't think we should redesignate them as an FTO. I think we can do much more targeted stuff. Uh, and I think, honestly, a lot of the human rights related uh, sanctions that we could impose on them uh, are much more, I think they would have much more cachet in the international community because, you know, the fact is the Houthis do a lot of things that no one in Europe, that no one in the US, Democrat especially, want to be done to people. Uh, you know, whether it is the sort of uh, repression of political opposition, which is brutal inside uh, the Houthi areas, whether it's the diversion of humanitarian, you know, desperately needed humanitarian assistance into Houthi corruption networks. Uh, you know, none of these things should be wanted by the international community, and they're not. Uh, and they're things that we can shed light on. Now, I would rather do the designations that way because, you know, ultimately it doesn't matter to the Houthis, really, if they're designated. I mean, they it's a, like a badge of honour to them. Honestly, as we've seen, the same way that they treat hitting, uh, being hit by the US, badge of honor, being um, able to disrupt global shipping, badge of honor. Uh, what we want to do is show people, look, it's not necessarily just about terror. It's not really about terrorism, even mainly. It's about the fact that we have this very odious regime in control of this key strategic piece of infrastructure, right on the Indian Ocean, Babel Mandeb, Red Sea, Suez Canal. Arabian Peninsula, and they're receiving Iran's most advanced weapons. And they're beginning to use them against international shipping, seemingly just to make a point that they're powerful under the pretext of the Gaza war. And that's not a healthy thing, you know, to, to happen. No, yeah, absolutely. I do want to sort of get to that. But before that, I mean, my question now is, you know, this Yemeni civil war, have the Houthis essentially won the war? I mean, have they? It seems like they have, to be honest. Like when I sort of look at what they control and so on. You did mention something though about you know uh, the the amount of income that the country brings in, but I mean, have they won the war? And what have peace talks looked like? Are they operating from the position of strength in these peace talks? These are great questions. So you know, for me, when I look at the Yemeni civil war, I often use the example of uh, the Korean War. You know, an international community uh, led by the UN uh, engages and prevents the northern part of the country from overrunning the south and taking, in, you know, knocking it out of existence. Uh, but the war only results in the demilitarized zone, you know, being placed halfway up the country. And we have this ongoing containment issue. And in many ways, the Houthis are somewhat similar to North Koreans, you know, really strange, wacky regime gaining access to all sorts of, um, you know, weapons of great destruction, if not mass destruction, uh, involved in all sorts of, you know, weird illicit ventures, smuggling, drug smuggling, uh, uh, corruption. So, you know, we've got this sort of odious regime that is currently only controlling about uh, less than half of the country geographically, but probably a little bit more of the country than half demographically. 
And, you know, for them, that's not a comfortable position to be in. Uh, they don't want to be having 20 million hungry mouths and no oil and gas uh, income. And what we're seeing at the moment is that the peace deal is basically structured around the Saudis saying, we will ensure that if there's a peace deal and if we end up with a sort of a federated Yemen where the Houthis have main control in one part and other players have main control in other parts, that all those parts will share the oil and gas revenue essentially on a per capita basis. So what you gain from stopping the war, Houthis, is that you get access to that revenue without having to militarily overrun the rest of the country. Uh, and, and so that's where we are right now. And, and honestly, it's it's working. I mean, the, the US worked very hard to make this peace process get to this point. The UN and the Saudis and the uh, Yemeni factions have now essentially stepped up and taken it over, and the US has stepped back, which is good timing, considering what's happening on the Red Sea coast, striking the Houthis. I doubt the US could be much of an interlocutor uh, anymore in that environment. So, you know, it, it's it's ready to roll. As a as a peace deal and as a revenue sharing deal, um, I wouldn't say they've won the war because what they wanted was to eliminate opposition, and they still have opposition in a number of places across the lower Red Sea coast. Like the Babel Mandate is currently held by Yemeni government aligned forces. The second largest city, the largest port in the country, Aden, is held by Yemeni forces and uh, Yemeni government aligned forces, and so are the. All the major oil and gas fields in Marib and Hadramaut are held by Yemeni uh, government-aligned forces. And if the Houthis tried to do a knockout blow again, which is one of the fears when this current conflict spread into the Red Sea, there is a question mark about whether the Saudis would say, well, we want peace with you. We don't want you to fire rockets into our kingdom, especially not this new super city neon that we're building on the west, west coast. Um, but we don't want it enough to let you just overrun the whole country and not even need the peace deal that we're offering or the money that we're offering that goes alongside it. Uh, we're going to stop you from taking over the whole country. And that's what the Saudis have done until now. Whenever the Houthis have pushed hard, the Saudis have put their finger on the scale with their airstrikes. And the Emiratis, uh, the UAE, would also probably do the same. And at the moment, maybe the Americans and the Brits would do the same too. So, you know, I think the Houthis are probably held in the areas that they control, unless we take our eye off the ball. And then they might lunge forward and they might take the whole thing. So, you know, we've talked about who the Houthis are. We've talked about the Yemeni civil war. And we've just talked about, I mean, how this sort of war, this peace process is attempting to be resolved in a way. I mean, what's the motivation now behind these attempted hijackings, these missile firings, and far more in the Red Sea? I mean, why are they doing this? This comes back to what I was talking about earlier, that the Houthis don't just want to be any member of the Iran-backed axis of resistance, you know, which includes Iran, Lebanese, Hezbollah, uh, the Iraqi um, Shia militias, uh, some others. Um, you know, the Houthis want to be Iran's best partner, Iran's most potent weapon. And with Lebanese Hezbollah, I mean, there's no doubt that Lebanese Hezbollah are the most developed Iranian proxy or partner. Uh, you know, just in terms of people say they have 130,000 rockets and missiles and drones and so on. Um, there's no doubt they're the most well developed, but they're also kind of a sunk cost 
for Iran. If Lebanese Hezbollah pushes the Israelis too hard, or even the Americans one day, they could find themselves pushed out because Lebanon's not a big place and the Israelis want to do it. And as a result, they're a kind of, uh, they're a tool that you only want to use in absolute emergency if you're the Iranians. You want to have Lebanese Hezbollah sitting there on Israel's border so that Israel knows if Israel ever does a really big attack on Iran and tries to kill their leaders or knock out their nuclear program or something, that 130,000 missiles are going to fly over the border or might do. And that everything that matters above ground in Israel could just be wrecked in a very short period of time. You see the similarities with North Korea. This is exactly what the North Koreans say they're going to do. They're going to burn the capital Seoul, which is within artillery range of them. So, you know, with Iran, when Iran has Lebanese Hezbollah, it has a North Korea type deterrent. It can say, we're going to burn Tel Aviv, uh, you know, minute one of the war. And that's something that, why the Houthis are so useful, and this is what I've been writing on recently, is that they don't have that vulnerability. Yeah, they're very useful, but look at what they're doing right now. Do they look scared? Uh, you know, the US just went and did uh, 60 strikes on them, 100 plus uh, munitions dropped in the first uh, rounds, you know, probably 150. They're not really that phased by it. They're keeping their head down a bit, but ultimately they can go do this again uh, in two weeks if they want. And they'll always be living there on the Red Sea coast. So whenever they feel like doing this, they can do it. And they don't fear that someone's going to invade, like the, like the Israelis might invade southern Lebanon. Then, you know, so for them, they're a very, um, very useful tool to the Axis resistance. And the reason why they're, you know, showing that they're supporting Hamas and supporting the Axis resistance with these attacks on international shipping uh, is because they want to show they are undeterrable. They want to show that they're the best Axis resistance member. Do the Houthis actually want to entrench the United States in a larger conflict? Do they want escalation? Or as you said, you know, they don't they don't really fear an invasion. You know, I mean, these 60 or so strikes that occurred, I think, last week, they weren't really faced by them. Yeah, no, I would think the Houthis, when they're looking at when they did the picking up of pieces the day after, they probably would have said, that was a little more painful than I thought that would be. But I'm alive. Here I am, still standing, still got 70% of my stuff. Um, if that was done three or four more times to me, I would not be the Axis of Resistance player that I, I have become. I would be a lot less well-armed. I would be unable to do these things that I've got used to doing, like firing ballistic missiles at Riyadh and hitting international shipping. So I guess I don't want to do that. I don't want to get hit another three, four times like that. But once, maybe twice, yeah, I can take that. And also, if all I have to do is keep attacking international shipping, maybe less often, but keep attacking it until the end of the Gaza war, I can say I outlasted the Israelis. I outlasted the Americans. I wasn't scared. I never stopped. I just kept going all the way through their bombings. What I think the Houthis are doing at the moment is to essentially say, how can we still be a big problem for international shipping, still keep international shipping rates, maritime rates high, still keep many shippers not using the Suez Canal or the Red Sea without triggering another US strike? 
And if we, we do get another US strike without triggering a mammoth one, uh, and, you know, they probably calculated that they're on pretty firm ground doing that. Uh, so I think they're playing a game of chicken with us that they know only they can win. And this is the problem about letting a regime like this get so entrenched and so well-armed in such a strategic position. It's not a good idea, which is what I was saying, you know, six years ago when the Houthis were nearly pushed out of the Red Sea coast in the Battle of Hadeda. But at that point, people in Congress were so angry at Saudi Arabia and the UAE that they really lost sight of the point, I think, of what was happening there on the Red Sea coast. And as a result, we went from being 80% done on removing the Houthis from being able to do this stuff to being 0% done. And now we're where we are now. Is this really about Gaza then? I mean, or was Gaza just a useful trigger uh, for the Houthis to do something that they've always wanted to do? I wouldn't put it quite that way. I, I, I would say that um, a capability was being built to allow the Houthis to play a major role in the axis of resistance. And then, to the surprise of many, possibly even in terms of the exact timing to Iran, definitely to the Houthis, uh, we were in this broader war. And the Houthis are being offered a chance to use that capability that they've built in partnership with Iran to play a role in the Gaza war. Uh, and, you know, in some ways, if you look at it, Lebanese Hezbollah, they haven't helped Hamas much. The Iraqi militias, they just fired aim to miss drones and rockets at our bases, lots of them, but, you know, no fatalities yet from their attacks after over 150 strikes in Iraq and Syria on US bases. The Houthis, in some ways, were face-saving for the axis of resistance. You know, they've actually made this a global crisis in which the US has been drawn into striking the axis of resistance in a new area. In other words, they've done what Iran, Lebanese, Hezbollah and the Iraqi militias have failed to do in this crisis, which is actually open a new front in support of Hamas that mattered. And, you know, that for them, this is their time. This is when they can say, we really did it. You just talked about it. So my last question, what's your prognosis then on a potential future conflict between the United States and the Houthis? Do you think that this will spin out into something Perhaps I mean that also depends on you know how the U.S. government is viewing the Houthis as a threat. I mean, what are your what's your take on that? Well, the first thing I'd say is this: I think the most helpful thing people could take away is that we are in a conflict with the axis of resistance that probably started in 1979, and one can go back to you know the overthrow of the the uh, you know, Iranian government and how then eventually that became uh, Ayatollah Khomeini's takeover of Iran in 1979 and the hostage crisis and all that stuff. But the fact is, you know, we are on extremely bad terms as Americans, as the West, with the axis of resistance, Iran, Lebanese, Hezbollah, Iraqi militias, Yemenis and Houthis, Hamas, I guess. So, you know, we're in that conflict and we've been in it for a long time. All that happens is that this conflict flares up or dies down to a, more, to a greater or a lesser extent. Now, will we uh, strike again in Yemen? Yeah, I mean, we're probably going to strike tonight or uh, tomorrow. We're going to strike a couple more times. But the, the thing is, in a place like Yemen, whether someone's bombing someone is not a question. 
they're always bombing someone. Someone's always bombing someone there. It's always a war there happening. And even after the ceasefire, it'll be there will be a level of violence in Yemen that most people would equate with wars. So it, it's not really about taking violence to zero uh, in our adversarial relationship with the Axis resistance. That's probably impossible until the Islamic Revolution, the Republic of Iran is overthrown, hopefully by democratic protesters one day, some kind of revolution. But in the meantime, you know, we're just trying to keep a lid on what's happening in Yemen. What's, I think, very likely to happen is that the non-Houthi parts of Yemen will begin to get more military support from international players. That's already happening by the Saudis and the Emiratis. But that's seen as being a kind of dirty proxy war inside Yemen and against the Iranians. I think international Western players will probably start engaging with the UN-recognized government in Yemen a bit more in the future because they can see that the Houthis are not very interested in being good neighbours, good global citizens. Uh, they're very disruptive and they're in fact one of the more determined and aggressive elements of the axis of resistance. Certainly. Dr. Michael Knights, thank you so much for joining me here today. Uh, we'll try to have a link to the October 2022 report that you uh, referenced from West Point. Uh, but you know, thank you so much for joining me here today. It's just a great conversation uh, on who the Houthis are, uh, what they believe, what they've been doing, and you know, just provides a helpful context behind some of what we've been seeing in the Red Sea. And then, of course, the US-UK uh, airstrikes that occurred last week. And certainly, I think, uh, potential future uh, conflict and fighting uh, between those groups. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me.